This is a diet of Brussels. What's the EU going to look like uh, after Brexit? Um, this is uh, a question that I'm thinking about today because I'm off to give a briefing to some people uh, about just this topic and since there's nothing that's confidential in what I'm going to say, uh, I thought I might as well make the most of uh, sharing it with you. Um, the question for asking, I think, is also driven by a need to remind people that the EU is going to carry on post-Brexit, that the departure of the UK is not the end of the line for the European Union. And that matters because sometimes in the British debate there seems to be an assumption that you know once uh, the UK is out, then that's it, and uh, we're done and dusted, and uh, no need to trouble ourselves with this again. Clearly, uh, a moment's reflection will highlight the uh, inadequacies of that position. So it's useful to think a bit about what means to be uh, uh, in that post-UK uh, phase of the EU. So I want to think about that in two ways. I want to think a little bit about uh, who matters uh, and then think a little bit about what matters. Uh, so, you know, actors and, and substance. One of the things that's clear is that there will be an impact on uh, the uh, voting that takes place within uh, the EU, that the UK has tended to be more on the outside of decisions than pretty much any uh, member state uh, that you care to mention. So the removal of the UK is likely to result in uh, uh, more coherent uh, uh, action from the EU, uh, that there will be uh, less opportunity for uh, those who oppose the thrust of uh, decisions to have enough weight in the system. That if you think about how the EU has moved largely to qualified majority voting, there is going to be a, um, a particular um, uh, loss to them. Now, if we look at the data, and uh, this is data from uh, Sarah Hagerman at the LSC, uh, we can see that the, uh, the Dutch, Swedes, uh, Danes, uh, Austrians, are probably the ones who have most frequently allied with the UK when voting no. So uh, the, that kind of uh, northern uh, liberal uh, grouping is probably the one that will suffer the most. So uh, we might expect then that their ability to block becomes more limited. Um, we will also expect that there'll be some changes that come through from uh, the removal of the UK in terms of their specific weight of countries within uh, the system. Now, uh, from this, we've got some uh, great data from uh, Klein, uh, Kleinowski and Saputowicz, uh, who are based in uh, Poland, who've done some uh, analysis. Uh, and what they suggest is that uh, Poland uh, and Spain are the two biggest uh, winners in the country in terms of the, their weight in the system, that the, the changes in qualified majority, which is you all know is based on the number of member states and the size of population, those will be the two countries who get the biggest uh, increase in this uh, new system. But importantly, they also point out that the country that really uh, benefits uh, is Germany, that Germany becomes central 
to uh, gaining a, a blocking minority. That basically, if Germany opposes, uh, you need Germany to oppose something to have a, a decent chance of it uh, getting through. Uh, and just to put that uh, slightly differently, that if Germany and France oppose something, then you're going to need 20 member states coming together to get a winning coalition. So basically, uh, everyone uh, else. So uh, the short version is that German, to the best extent French and Italian preferences, will become more important in uh, the council and that you're going to need to take more account of their preferences. Now that really uh, um, highlights the, the the structure of the decision making within the council, and I think that that's something that's that's worth bearing in mind. Likewise, in the parliament, we're going to see some changes too. That the removal of the UK has some particular effects. There are three big groups of uh, MEPs at the moment: UKIP, uh, the Conservatives, and Labour. In the case of Labour, that means a removal uh, from the big centre-left uh, Socialists and Democrats uh, group, which means that the, the centre-right party, the EPP, uh, is going to be even more uh, uh, ahead of the centre-left. So uh, more uh, strength for that, that centrist coalition on the right. But the removal of the Conservatives and UKIP probably means the death of the two groups that they're involved in, namely the uh, ECR group and the EFDD group, respectively. So in the case of the Eurosceptic group, EFDD, there clearly won't be enough to meet the threshold requirements for forming a group, uh, and there's a question about whether uh, those remaining sceptics who are in their particularly five-star uh, movement from Italy, whether they try and move over to the Conservatives, who are also going to be uh, in a difficult position with the removal of the Conservative Party, or whether parties move across to the uh, far-right uh, ENF group. So we're going to see some reshuffling uh, in the wake of uh, the MEP's departure, and clearly uh, that would also be shaped by the uh, European elections that will come very shortly after when we expect um, the uh, departure of the UK. So the UK is going to be changing and it's going to see potentially more uh, weight for the more uh, Christian, uh, democratic, uh, continental uh, and interventionist uh, politics uh, that we see in many other countries, that the, the liberal group is going to be diminished in terms of member states and that potentially we're going to see uh, some significant reordering of power within the European Parliament. And what this also means is that given that we're likely to continue the Spitzenkandidaten uh, process uh, in 2019, that whoever gets to lead the European People's Party, that centre-right party, is likely to then become, very likely to become, the next Commission President. So that's changes within who matters. Uh, I think we also need to think a bit about, briefly, the other level, particularly given uh, recent events in Germany. There are elections all the time in uh, the EU. Uh, we've got many elections uh, coming through, uh, most obviously next in the Czech Republic. We still don't know where we are with the German government. 
the constellation of national governments is going to change uh, repeatedly uh, through the uh, next two years. However, I, I don't want to overstate that. I think you know the, the impact of that is always quite attenuated that no one country, uh, even with a change of policy, can make a big uh, difference. And we'll talk about that in the context of France very shortly. And most obviously in the case of Germany, uh, all the likely government uh, combinations that we're going to have contain parties who have a very similar line on the EU, that the, the only one that has a different line is the uh, AfD, the alternative for Germany, and they are not going to be getting into governments uh, anytime soon. So that's a bit about who matters. Let's think a little bit about what matters. Key thing, uh, I think, to stress here is that Brexit does not particularly matter. Brexit is not a priority issue for the EU at the moment. It's important and it has consequences, but to a very large extent, it is not the top of the agenda. It's not the big motor. Where it has been uh, consequential has been in uh, helping to open up a window of opportunity that the Commission has seen, um, which it has uh, tried to make the most of with its white paper on the future of Europe. Now, that uh, came out uh, earlier this year and basically wanted to kind of take things through to the next European elections in 2019 on the basis that, you know, here was a window of opportunity that we were through the big elections in France and Germany and that uh, things were relatively calm and we might as well make the most of that. Now, what that white paper put out was a number of scenarios for discussion and debate. So we had the uh, just carrying on scenario, uh, shrinking down to the single market, uh, variable speed. So, you know, if you want to do more, you can do more. Then there's the uh, doing less, more efficiently kind of uh, model or the uh, doing much more uh, together uh, kind of approach. Now, that white paper was short on detail. Uh, it was a, a speculative uh, thrust. Clearly, the Commission would quite like to be doing more, uh, but also there's an awareness that uh, there is enough uncertainty within the EU to make that not uh, an automatically obvious uh, outcome and direction. Now, that white paper... Uh, it's fair to say, has not led to massive uh, and spontaneous public debate about the future of Europe or the EU. Uh, it's not even got that far in the uh, discussions that have taken place between member states. One of the things that has held that back is the continuing uh, unwillingness on the part of many member states to think about treaty reform, that the bitter experience with the constitutional treaty uh, that led to the rejection by the Dutch and the French in 2005 and then the reformulation into Lisbon took so long and was so painful that uh, not reforming treaties looked particularly attractive. Now linked to that uh, is also the continuing uncertainty in the German government that Angela Merkel has long been dubious about the desire and the need for um, uh, opening treaties. And without that, it's very hard to do anything very major in terms of change. Now, as a result of that, we've got ideas that float around, things that happen, 
but somewhat limited in what they can do. Now we can see that in a number of different areas. The main detailed program that has come out in the past year has been the speech by uh, uh, Emmanuel Macron at the Sorbonne back in uh, September of this year, where he laid out a vastly detailed uh, vision of what the EU could do. Now, that was really saying, that's the first time you've seen a French president uh, engage in such a detailed discussion. Um, but and one that tried to balance uh, a number of different uh, elements um, and really try and reclaim, reclaim the initiative on uh, European leadership. But even Macron has not been able to translate that wave of support that he had at the point of his election earlier this year into unbridled European uh, leadership. He talks about trying to translate his En Marche uh, movement to a European level to try and do a, that kind of startup model uh, at a European level. But at the moment, that's something that is more a, a twinkle in his eye than anything uh, of substance. Now, uh, national leaders clearly do matter that they are still guardians of the treaties, they are gatekeep changes to the policy. But uh, France's position remains somewhat limited uh, by its domestic weakness. That uh, The first pillar of Macron's uh, plan is about domestic reform, that the need for supply-side uh, changes to the labour market uh, to help address the structural weakness of the French economy in the Eurozone is recognised by him and his government as a necessary... Uh, Precondition for claiming uh, the, the the leaders leadership at a European level. Now, as we can see, that domestic agenda has run uh, into uh, difficulties, as everyone knew it would, uh, and it's unclear at this stage whether he and his government are able to push through that uh, to uh, effect some changes. Now, if he is successful in that, then he will be in a relatively strong position, particularly if uh, the German government ends up in a minority situation or indeed in a long-run uh, set of debates about who's in and who's out. At the same time, uh, without a German government, it's very hard for anything to actually happen, that there will be necessarily uh, some sitting on hands uh, as we go through. Now, a second example, I think, of where the, the kind of attentions lie, quite aside from that kind of uh, constitutional project, remains the immigration issue. You've got uh, a stabilisation of migration flows uh, to a certain extent, not least underpinned by the deal with Turkey uh, over the past two years. Clearly, the Turkish relationship is highly problematic, not least because of the uh, actions of the Turkish government. And that's something which provides a degree of uh, contingency around that situation that is uh, of uh, ongoing major concern. Now, it's not just about the flows of uh, immigrants and refugees into the EU and the management of that. We might think about the work of Frontex, which is uh, developed itself uh, largely through this uh, period, but also on the impact it has on free movement. Uh, 
we might take it as slightly ironic that the Commission is arguing so vehemently for the integrity of the four freedoms uh, in uh, the Article 50 process, even as many Schengen states have introduced uh, or have uh, implemented emergency suspensions of free movement of people uh, as a result of the flows that are there. And clearly it shades again into constitutional questions, particularly in countries like uh, Poland and Hungary, where there is a lot of uh, existential concern about immigration, even in the absence of uh, substantive volume, uh, they are genuinely very concerned that this is about trying to change the nature of their societies, uh, and this is, a, if you like, a, a civilizational threat, to use uh, Alex Sherbiak's term. So immigration, as much as the heat has gone out of, uh, the intense heat has gone out of that issue, it remains a critical point and one where many opponents of European integration continue to pick away at it. We might think, for example, about uh, the new uh, Austrian Chancellor, Kurtz, uh, and his very hard line on this kind of issue. A final issue, then, that is, uh, I think, really highlights where the EU is or isn't, is the recent developments in security and defence, that the signing of the uh, statement of intent on uh, PESCO, on permanent uh, structured cooperation, is indicative of the way that the EU has worked and will continue to work. Whilst you brought in almost all the member states uh, into that uh, framework, the substance of it is really very thin. It's, it's largely, as so much with security and defence, about intentions to cooperate, about trying to uh, build concrete uh, projects of cooperation. Um, and it still is uh, you know, very unclear that this really adds anything of any substance and consequence. So debates about you know, moving to a European army uh, or some such, or you know, a single foreign policy, is uh, overblown uh, to a very considerable degree. Instead, it's the usual European model about adding uh, some new capacities uh, and giving an opportunity for more interaction between member states. However, it's still very much a voluntary process. Uh, it's one that's driven by unanimity rather than by any kind of majority voting. And the long-run impact of it will be the only one that is really worth uh, dwelling on, that uh, you won't see any change in uh, the next uh, few years about what is and isn't possible at a European level. So taken together, the EU, again, is preoccupied with other issues apart from Brexit. It's worried about economic growth, although that's easing as well with the Eurozone. It's worried about immigration and free movement. It's worried about its constitutional path. And Brexit then becomes, uh, if you like, uh, a sideshow. I hope that's been useful to you, just to kind of get an overview of where the EU might be going which is to say uh, it's heading where it always heads, uh, to some discussions and some debates, and probably to some compromises of some kind. Thanks very much, and talk to you again soon.